I'm Don Merrill, and I'm talking with Bob Niemeyer. Mr. Niemeyer is a Republican who is running for governor in the 2016 special election to complete the term of Governor John Kitzhaber, who resigned in February of last year. Um, Mr. Niemeyer, welcome. Thank you. Okay, Mr. Niemeyer, I guess the first question I have for you, sir, is, is why do you want to be governor? Well, I have a wide variety of reasons, but most of them have to do with uh, wanting to actually try and be part of the state's convention. Uh, Article 5 States Convention of the United States Constitution, which would allow us to put forth new constitutional amendments that will uh, get basically our government back under control. There's just too much going on right now, which is just sheer stupidity on part of the Democratic Party right now. some some legislators have actually said that there's probably more like uh, uh, four or five branches of government right now that exist that uh, are operating independent of uh, uh, the government or, or independent of the legislative process, independent of the legislature, even independent of uh, the governor's office that have to be taken uh, back and a Republican government will do that. I've uh, uh, actually put together a small declaration of independence on my website at bobneemeyer.com. Also on my website, you can read uh, four constitutional amendments that I've actually com- uh, come up with myself. If I understand your uh, proposal, you want to have it so that the U.S. Constitution allows the creation of amendments without needing the approval of Congress? Correct. That's what the whole idea behind the Article Fine State Convention is about. Is that the way the founders intended the Constitution, the ratification process to work? Yes. Article 5 of the United States Constitution allows for the states to to amend the Constitution independent of uh, Congress. Because right now, Congress... Now, is that an interpretation, or is that exactly what the intenders, the founders intended? I think that's exactly what the founders intended. So the whole idea behind uh, what the Founding Fathers did was to allow the states to be able to do that type of thing on their own. So then, in your view, why hasn't that happened? Well, there was an attempt to do it once uh, a few years ago. It had to do with term limits. It didn't quite make it. Uh I think that what has to happen is that, uh, um, well, it's never been done successfully, yes, but I think that enough is going on on the federal level that enough people are are mad enough now and has been successful enough to get to more than 30 um, Republican governors in the states that I think that we're actually going to be able to get to 36 or 30, 41 possibly Republican governors in the states to where they could actually take something to their legislature and come up with a way that we could have a state's convention where, for instance, uh, on my thinking anyways, or my idea was to, for instance, take the governor and maybe three selected states uh, county commissioners from each state where all those people would get together and create the necessary constitutional amendments that would get our federal government under control. And once we get to that magic number of 36 uh, governors, we'll be able to start moving forward on this. Let me redirect, and we can go back to that. Mm -hmm. Um, 
you only got 17% of the vote when you ran uh, in the primary uh, for Oregon's first House district in 2014. Why do you think you're a more viable candidate now for governor? Well, in that 17% of the vote that I got back then, also, I didn't wasn't able to afford to put my uh, profile into the voters' pamphlet. So, you know, it was $2,500 back then to do that. I just didn't have the $2,500. But I still got 17% of the vote. And that was basically, I believe, because I took some hardline stances on... on uh, marriage issue. Like I said, I'm not going to give up the name of marriage uh, to gay couples. That resonated quite well. Right now, I believe that I'm going to do my absolute best to protect the people from uh, of this state from the paying off the PERS type of thing, where there's so much money that we're, the state's going to have to cough up. And I don't believe that... Uh, the people of this state should have to do that. And that's one of my hardline stances. I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep the people from having to pay that money for the corruption that went on in the past in our government. I also want to return to um, the the comment you had made about gay marriage. But I, I wanted to ask you something about uh, some of the issues that are facing Oregonians that are sort of pressing right now as the 2016 election approaches. One of them is the minimum wage. I want to ask you what your thoughts are about the minimum wage, setting a um, what some would call a living minimum wage. I completely am against minimum wages. Let me use McDonald's as an example. Uh, in Seattle right now, where they rose the uh, minimum wage, they replaced everybody with computer screens for everybody to get their own uh, meals by typing in buttons. That threw out an awful lot of, of people from McDonald's working. But that kind of technological advancement is move, moving forward in, in many industries. I mean, you think, you think it was because the minimum wage uh, yes. caused McDonald's to make that change to let those people go? Of, of course. Uh, when you can look at uh, a computer screen and the computers that only cost something like maybe $2,000 a station at worst uh, to replace somebody that I'm going to have to pay maybe $16,000 a year part-time on, on uh, minimum wage, I, I would do that in a heartbeat. You as a small business, business person would do that in a heartbeat. I would not have a choice. In fact, uh, if you go to $15 an hour, uh, you're above a certain limit that the Oregon's going to start collecting taxes from, too. So I, I really believe that the extent that they want to go is going to be rather self-defeating because people will see, I want $15 an hour for, on their, their signs, but then you can go through and say, minus federal tax now, minus Oregon tax now, minus uh, health care tax now, uh, the fact of the matter is, if you go to 15, you're not going to get 15. You're going to probably not get much more than you are now. So then you're saying that it really wouldn't benefit workers. No, it doesn't benefit workers, and it doesn't benefit anybody that is a beginner. The government will find a way to, to make sure that you don't get anything more than what you were asking for anyways. I want to ask you now about the issue of, of affordable housing in 
Portland and in a lot of the metropolitan areas. There has been a lot of discussion about how because of um, rising home sale rates, that has pushed up rising rental rates, and it makes it hard not only for people of low income to find places to live, affordable places to live, but also people who are moving to Portland and are trying to find first-time homes, either rentals or homes to buy. Do you think that there is affordable there is an affordable housing issue and if No, it's a restriction is, issue by Metro. There could be a lot more building going on if it wasn't for uh groups like uh the Urban Growth Boundary and the Metro and all these different government groups who are trying to control where everybody is is uh building things. That's just going to restrict the amount of housing. They're doing these things where they're forcing some cities to build this high-density housing apartment type of thing. That's not doing anybody any good. Um, I believe, well, for instance, about three months ago, there was a real issue about uh, boring, wanting to... uh, Is boring Oregon? Yes, uh, wanting to uh, expand some of their uh, housing places out there and metro jumped all over them and and virtually stopped their progress uh i don't understand what that was but i know it happened and portland should not have been able to reach out that far to control uh how boring handles its businesses and housing I want to talk about graduation rates a little bit graduation rates for oregon are among the lowest in the country and um, there has been a lot of movement around testing, not testing, state-controlled testing, federally influenced testing. What would you like to do or what would you do as governor to help raise high school graduation rates uh, and make Oregon students uh, more able to find jobs and work in jobs Charter that industries schools. need them to work in? The only way we're ever going to get uh, the students of this state to learn anything is to introduce some form of of competition with the state. The state's doing a terrible job and the way to uh, introduce or what we need to do is introduce the charter school type of system where we can have different forms of charter schools for the different forms of students that need to be taught. But aren't Get there out already, of the way. No. But aren't there, there's K-12 and Connections Academy. Those are charter schools. Yes, and we need to have a, several more of those types of things where um, – the availability of of all different types of teaching techniques for the, all of the different types of students is allowed. Right now, the public school system, I'll use Common Core as the uh, uh, for instance, where the school boards in the schools have only got one thing available, and that's what uh, Common Core books and and that type of teaching thing that the state literally says you have to pick from uh, this. Whereas charter schools can go along and say, okay, we want to be able to use uh, this teaching technique, for instance, phonics. We want to have uh, ABC type of teaching. We want to have math type of teaching. And we want to have these books which allow students to have the different teaching techniques that are completely forbidden right now if you go to a public school. The success rate of charter schools is not that high. One in five charter schools fail. And you're not able to really know how the school is going to perform until after they've been in business for a few years and received 
a lot of state money. What, from what I understand, charter schools in Oregon get about 90% of what the public schools get, but they don't have any of the infrastructure or any of the overhead. And the teaching techniques... They, they get only half. The teaching techniques also, um, I, a lot of them are, com- are computer-based, I, I believe. Yes. Um, and there's been some questions about qualifications of some of the teachers to teach the students the material that they're actually teaching them. Well, there is this organization called the Heritage Foundation, and they're uh, a conservative making, conservative think tank. Yes, and and they're basically putting together a very large. Um, uh, charter school proposal to bring into the state of Oregon. There's quite a bit of support for that. And they'll be able to actually uh, make brick-and-mortar schools and everything if they get it uh, moved into Oregon successfully. And I can see that uh, that Heritage Foundation will be able to supply the different forms of education. I've talked to them never, or, or I've talked to them several times now, and that's their intent. I wanted to ask you, uh, related to what we were talking about regarding graduation and how to improve the education um, of Oregon kids, employers have complained that graduates that they're getting aren't able to do some of the jobs they need them to do. And last year, year before last, the, the language was that there was a skills gap between what kids knew how to do when they were coming out of school and what employers needed them to do when they showed up for work. What, if anything, do you think you can do to help close that gap before the kids graduate so that they can have a better shot at getting a job. Well, Oregon I, hasn't had the best history with with uh, people who are running its its education divisions. No, it hasn't. Okay, I'm from a very old school thinking here. There's far too much technology being used in schools right now that uh, to where some kids can't even pick up and know what end of a pencil to use to write on a piece of paper. Uh, There's some people who really cannot add and subtract without a calculator in their hands. I think that our schools have taken advantage of technology way too much and some of that has got to be cut back to where the students have actually got to do things with their hands. They just don't do that anymore. Everybody really can sit by themselves with a, a little um, notepad and not pay any attention to the world around them until they get out of school and then they have to actually do something at a job, like uh, uh, how about a checking account class in in high school? You know, this is what a checking account is for and, and how it's supposed to be positive. You're not supposed to spend more than what you got. Uh, a little bit of education like that went going awful long ways. Uh, there's just no nothing practical that's being taught uh, in schools at all. Talking about businesses and how businesses need to get out of the way, government needs to get out of government the way of business. Government get out of the way of businesses. You you had talked about you had talked to some folks at the Lighthouse Christian Church in Warrenton, and you had mentioned that you would give a full pardon to Sweet Cakes by Melissa, the Gresham Bakery that had to pay the fine for refusing to bake a cake for a same-sex couple. Yes. So so let me ask you then. Um, you know, Governor Brown has said that she supports the relocation of Syrian refugees in Oregon. And, you know, some of those refugees are Christian, but many of them are Muslim. Um, If you were governor, would you continue to support her policy? Not at all. Even as the Republican frontrunner Donald Trump promises to freeze an influx of all Muslim refugees into the U.S.? You you would not support her policy? No, I I, 
completely behind Donald Trump on this. But the reason why I'm, a- I'm asking those two questions is that in the case of Sweet Cakes by Melissa, that is a business choosing to not serve uh, a certain set of customers because of their religious belief. And these are, in, in the other case, the state of Oregon is opening its doors to Muslims to come to the United States out of safety for their lives, or to be able to live in a country that is um, reputed to have religious freedom. So I'm just curious, what's the difference between the two? They're both about religious freedom. Their difference between the Muslim religious freedom and the people that came here, for instance, like in Russia with the Russians in the Mount Angel area, they came here to build a life for themselves, whereas the Muslim refugees are coming here to build uh, a life uh, their way and make sure everybody else wants to live or is forced to live that way. There's a big difference, uh, and that's clearly something that uh, the President of the United States has got to draw a line on. Would you say that there are Muslims who have moved to the United States who fully and wholeheartedly support the American dream and the American philosophy as clearly and as sincerely as, as any other American that you might know? I believe, yes, there are a few like that. A few. But not the Syrian refugees, when you can see how many of them are pouring into Europe and all the problems they're having there and all pouring, trying to pour as many of them into the United States and how many have created problems here. It has to be stopped until we have a better way to vet these people before they come in. Right now, you can't tell the difference if you have 500 of them come off of an airplane uh, that we're just in a battle zone. There's, there's just nothing that we can do to vet that number of people coming into the United States to make sure that the people of the United States are safe. Something that Governor Brown said she wants to do is to make it easier for small businesses to do business in Oregon. You propose this in something that you call the contract for representation. And this is from your website. All elected office holders and those that are supported by the legislature or the governor shall be from the day of this amendment be ratified and defined as self-employed contractors representing the people in all matters for which they were elected or appointed. No action from any government agency will be allowed to declare any office holder or appointee an employee of the government. How does making people who were elected to office self-appointed contractors serve business or the legislature? I wanted to turn Congress basically completely into independent contractors. They're, they're paid for life. They got health care for life. You're, right. So what you're saying is this self-employed contractor proposal is to eliminate all those lifetime benefits once someone yes. leaves Congress. And, and make them pay the taxes that we have to pay. And right now, they have absolutely no uh, reason to have a connection to how much taxes people are paying because they, they, they don't care. Are you saying that this might also be a proposal that should be adopted by state legislatures as well? Yes. I believe that everybody that's elected and appointed should have the uh, absolutely no way to receive a pension from the state of Oregon, period, or have their benefits and their 
uh, or anything paid for by the state. It has to come out of what they're getting paid, and they have to live with what they have taken away from the state in terms of just money with when they leave office. I want to switch gears and talk a little bit about the Malheur Wildlife Refuge in Burns. Okay. Um, Governor Brown said that the federal government had asked her not to talk about the situation, but she reached a point where she felt like she had to. And shortly after she did, um, there was movement. Unfortunately, it ended uh, in the shooting death of um, Mr. Robert Lavoie Finnegan. So I wanted to ask you, um, if you are elected as governor and um, you are faced with a land rights issue, in fact, there's there's a discussion right now about the designation of another national monument here in Oregon. Yes. So um, how do you see yourself responding to to future land rights issues regarding state and federal jurisdiction in the future? I happen to believe that what we should do as a state is literally define our own ability to take care of the natural resources in the state. And. I think that that's something that there's there's nothing that the federal government could do to stop us from doing that. And there is a technique to do that. It's still something I'm formulating and would like to actually present to, well, I, I'm, if I get it all put together sometime in the next four weeks, I hope, on my website. I really do believe that the mentality of the Washington, D.C. crowd right now is that they look at Oregon as nothing more than something that they can sell from Washington, D.C. They don't understand that there are people out here living and working in those areas that were trying to benefit from the natural resources they grew up in. That disconnect is something that we have to, on the states, take control of. It's something that we could claim is the state's rights to control our resources. Then on top of all of that, there's many things out there where the federal government is looking at Oregon and Washington and parts of, you know, many sections of Idaho about how they want to create some kind of wilderness thing uh, going from Mexico all the way up to Alaska. There's people in D.C. who believe that that should exist, even if we have to get rid of the people on those lands. The mentality of the D.C. group who want to do this type of thing is so much of a disconnect between that and the people that live out here. It's it's just incredible. It's something that has to be uh, stopped. Earlier, you had mentioned uh, the public employee retirement system and some of the problems that it's having. Um, As you know, um, last year, the legislature tried to um, negotiate a fix for PERS. Correct. The Oregon Supreme Court didn't like it. No, they came back and declared it contractual agreements. So now the, the, the problems with PERS are still there. If you became governor... What would you do to try to take another whack at fixing some of the problems with with, uh, the retirement system? Uh, As governor, I would probably get rid of 20, if not 40 percent of the people that are working for the state of Oregon. I believe that uh, they're so so bloated with the extra people all over the place that that could easily be done. See, right now, the state is in this position where they 
have been forbidden, if you will, to renegotiate by this uh, Supreme Court decision. If you get rid of enough employees to force a renegotiation where we could come back and say, okay, we're not going to be doing this uh, 2% per year for the rest of your life type of increase on your benefits, then we could get control of how much money that uh, we have to give to the employees after they retire. But getting rid of 20 to 40% of state workers, I mean, that's a pretty big union fight that you'd be asking for. Uh, yes. That <laughs> doesn't bother you? No. Uh, it has to be done. I mean, when a lot of the uh, people out there realize that uh, they're not going to be able to have a pension, uh, because the taxpayers just don't have the money to do it. Where's we going to get the money? And some of that realization is, is happening. We're basically in, in something that's very similar to what happened to Enron. So a governor that is willing to go in and cut those jobs, to cut back on the spending, cut back on the waste, find every single loophole that we can possibly find to cut back on what we don't need uh, in this state is the only approach that has to be taken. And I, and I also believe that a lot of the contracts that this uh, Oregon Supreme Court is saying are contractual agreements, well, if we want to play the contractual agreement game, then let's see whether or not some of those agreements that they made were fraudulent. Speaking of the Oregon Supreme Court, another recommendation on your website is you want to give the legislature the option to overturn rulings by the Oregon Supreme Court. You say on your website that such seditions or seductions of the high court require these kinds of checks and balances. But isn't your proposal giving power to one branch the reason why checks and balances were put in place? Well, the, the whole idea behind, well, like our Supreme Court has three people. There's only three people that need to be swayed by whatever men, or means necessary to get a court ruling done. If the representatives of the people be able to overturn a Supreme Court ruling that just doesn't make any sense, uh, is what we need. And we could use the uh, example of the uh, this PERS program. A lot of people didn't think that that was a contractual agreement at all. But the court always gives lawmakers a chance to take a second crack at the law. I mean, a lot of people would call that uh, it, when the Supreme Court or when courts and judges make those kinds of decisions that legislators consider to be outside of their realm, they call it judicial activism. So how is it that uh, it's okay then for the legislature to step on the boundaries of the courts? I mean, the courts, when they turn down a ruling and consider it and call it unconstitutional or whatever, what they're telling the legislature is, legislature, fix your law. And they have denied that to the legislature with Burrs. They've told them you can't renegotiate this stuff. It's a contractual agreement. You find the money. There's people that are running for office right now, particularly the state treasurer, who have come up with some numbers and, and say that we have to find a way to, to pay this. How are you going to get that money from the state that doesn't have the money? It's just not going to happen unless you come up with a whole bunch of, of, of taxes on the people of this state. And, and 
the people who made that ruling are also part of PERS. So they're protecting themselves. This is my last question. As you know, experts are predicting a 9.0 earthquake in Oregon before 2030. As governor, what would you do to help the state continue to work on preparing for that big earthquake? I don't believe that there's a rainy day fund of money that could be used for uh, this situation at all. It is the type of thing where should the big one happen, we're probably going to be in a lot of hurt for a long time until we can get caught up with it. Well, I I think the Uh, question was, what would you do to get us ready? What needs to be done is basically, I think, has to be that rainy day fund or those funds that are necessary need to be set aside. And those resources have got to be rebuilt in certain locations around the state. That doesn't exist. There's nobody that is in the government keeping track of Equipment, for instance, that would be necessary to rebuild a bore uh, owned by the private sector that could be used to rebuild roads in an emergency. There's construction, there's logging equipment, there's all kinds of things that exist in Newport that could be drawn upon as a way to help and to have somebody in charge and knowing where that stuff is and what we could do in an emergency does not exist. And that's the type of thing that I would try and create. Uh, right now, a lot of the bureaucrats think that, well, maybe we should have our own set of tractors and trailers and, and trucks and stuff like that hidden someplace. And no, you, that's just uh, the wrong thing to do. I mean, the people are ready to take care of that if you were to just let them do it. Mr. Niemeyer, I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. Well, thank you for having me. I've been, enjoyed this. I'm Don Merrill, and I've been talking with Bob Niemeyer. Mr. Niemeyer is a Republican who is running for governor in the 2016 special election to complete the term of Governor John Kitzhaber, who resigned in February of last year.